0: Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode.
1: Hi, and welcome to The Long View. I'm Christine Benz, Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning for Morningstar.
2: And I'm Jeff Patak, Chief Ratings Officer for Morningstar Research Services.
1: Our guest on the podcast today is consumer advocate and personal finance expert, Clark Howard. Clark has been hosting the nationally syndicated radio show and podcast, The Clark Howard Show since 1989 he's also the author of 10 books three of which have been new york times bestsellers he also sponsors the community action center which is a free resource for advice on money and consumer issues he received his ba in urban government from american university and his mba from central michigan university clark welcome to the long view thank you Well, thanks for being here. Uh, It seems like when it comes to personal finance matters, the discussion often moves immediately to investing and away from some of the day-to-day financial decision-making that you focus on so much in your work. Why do you think that is?
3: Well, because if you think about the investment community, which is where most of the energy is in anything involving personal finance, it's really skewed towards higher income earners. And they're looking what to do with additional, potentially disposable income, where the typical American is just trying to make ends meet, paycheck to paycheck, month to month. And my role has been to serve people who, for the most part, find there's more month than money. And so they really feel like they're drowning financially. They don't know where to turn, what to do. And that has turned out to be my principal role is serving people who just don't know how to squeeze every dollar so that they can meet more than just their regular daily and monthly expenses.
2: So it sounds like you focused on spending and being a smart consumer because you saw an inviting opening there. Is that,
3: is that Right. No, it just kind of emerged organically, and my background was really, really odd, and I don't know how much you want to know about it, but I was, and I've always been an entrepreneur from very young, started my own company when I was 25, sold it at 31, and retired and moved to the East Coast of Florida, and was a beach bum for a good while, and then just kind of ended up piece by piece, bit by bit, giving advice in the media about how to handle your money. And it just kind of happened because uh, my expertise and the company that I sold was a chain of travel agencies back when that was a great business to be in. And I started off in radio and TV, giving advice about travel. And just over time, it morphed into more general stuff about the wallet. And it became today, like, you know, a pretty sizable organization with websites and newsletters and social media and podcasts and radio and TV.
1: So when someone goes on Clark.com, they can find guidance on nearly any money related topic. It's really just a fabulous resource. Thank you. Um, Well, it is, but I'm curious, there are a lot of sort of links and sponsorships and all that. So how do you ensure the independence of your editorial content apart from all of those advertisers and sponsors and so
3: forth? Okay, that's an awesome question because it is a real sore spot in the modern digital media era. When is content essentially advertorial? When is it being written because it supports an ad buy? When are they sponsored stories? And my feeling was that becomes a slippery slope. And I have a privilege in my life. I'm, I'm I was a retired guy. I, I don't need the money, but what I do need is my reputation and integrity. So in everything that I do, the ad side has nothing to do with the content. And you take the websites. We have a Berlin Wall, which anybody younger, they <laughs> don't really know what the Berlin Wall is. Or you mention East Germany, and they're like... What was that? Anyway, but the idea is that the individuals who do the links that are posted in a story, those are posted after a story is written and the writers have no idea whether a story they're writing just attracts eyeballs or attracts eyeballs and as a result, revenue. We don't allow any sponsored stories and absolutely never write any advertorial or allow any advertorial. The other thing is I test a lot of products and services, and I buy them all. And anything that any of our writers want to write about, we pay for it just like Consumer Reports would, because we've got to be unbought and unbossed. Because something you may not know about me, I'm the dullest person alive. I mean, just (laughs) you could take a long list of people. I'm a really dull guy. So if people are going to come to me for information, it's got to be because it's based on trust. And I want people to know that even if they disagree with me, that what you're hearing from me comes from my head and my heart. And it's something that has always been communicated to our team, which is now a combination of full-time paid people and contractors, 37 writers. And so they all understand that we have one job, and that's to have integrity in everything we do. I
2: wanted to switch and talk about big financial decisions. It's a big focus of your work. One of the big issues that households wrestle with is how to deploy any extra funds they have available. Should it go to debt pay down or investing? How would you advise them to approach those kinds of household capital allocation decisions?
3: So there is no one right answer, but I want to start with the base of what I try to drill in my audience's head, and that is that it needs to start at a baseline. If I can reach somebody in their teens and 20s, it starts with when you're getting a regular paycheck that you set up your life where you're saving at least a dime of every dollar you make from the get-go. But a lot of people I reach later where they've gotten into too much fun with credit cards or other debt, and or they could even be people who ended up with student loans that are a burden. And so then I face the challenge you just placed before me, which is what do you do when you've got this goal of trying to save for rainy day, trying to save, let's say, for a down payment of a house? Trying to save for retirement, and at the same time, you've got this debt over here, it's overwhelming for people. So, what I encourage people to do, and it really somewhat depends on how difficult somebody's situation is with debt, is what I call the one, two, three, where you take $1 and put it towards savings, $2 towards debt, or two towards saving and one towards debt. And what changes that, because you can't do everything, but what changes the balance of one to two or two to one is how heavily you're indebted. That if you're carrying a lot, a lot of debt that you're looking at years and years and years, if ever to pay off, and you're paying high interest rates on that debt, then your highest priority Two-thirds of the money you're putting aside to deal with debt or savings, two-thirds goes to debt, one-third towards savings. But money needs to go to both. I don't want people to feel so overwhelmed that they never, never, ever get started with saving for their future. And that's why it needs to be a part of it all through the process, even when you're trying to extinguish debt.
1: So you referenced home ownership as a goal, and we've had kind of this frenzied home buying market over the past year. seems like there's a shortage of inventory in a lot of markets. So how can home buyers protect themselves in this sort of environment, especially like first-time home buyers who aren't necessarily selling something that is appreciated a lot? How can they make sure that they're not kind of buying at a high point?
3: So I went through this with my oldest child who is 32 and she and her husband buying their first house in the teeth of a very rough time to be a first-time home buyer. And my advice to them is the same I give to any first-time home buyer right now. The core to how you deal with an inflated market where you have really inflated prices on homes, but at the same time, depressed rates on mortgages, even though mortgages have gone up recently, they're still by historical measures very low. It's your cycle of ownership that is core and key to dealing with an inflated housing market. And so I encourage first-time home buyers to buy a home that they feel, barring some unexpected life circumstance, that they can spend a decade or more in that property. Because the lower monthly payments, the lower interest rate that gives you that lower payment, you help negate over time a lot of the inflated housing price that you're having to absorb as a first-time home buyer.
2: And what if you don't have that kind of time horizon? Would you advise someone in that situation to rent?
3: Yeah, I know this is cruel and brutal, but I recommend that people rent. And a lot of uh, particularly younger married couples, really don't like when I say that because there's something about, you know, the circle of life that, you know, you pair up and you maybe or maybe not you're going to have kids, but then you go and you buy a home, that that's part of the process. But the reality is that is a psychological thing when your ownership cycle is going to be shorter and in a time where prices have gone up so much in housing that in most markets in the United States, renting in a shorter term is a smarter decision for your wallet than buying. Because, you know, we're outrunning people's affordability of homes. And builders are doing a lot. If you read their financials, they're doing a lot to acquire land banks, as they refer to it, to continue to build. We've got a lot of multifamily being built the imbalance with a shortage of homes that may be somewhere around 4 to 5 million housing units in the United States, that's going to solve over time. And so the run-up in prices we've had is not sustainable adjusted for inflation over a long period of time because you just can't support a housing market where you've outrun people's ability to afford. And that's why if you're a shorter-term buyer I used to say you needed to own a home seven years to make the math really work with the costs in buying and the costs out selling. But right now, I've added to that hitting the decade, the 10-year mark, because of all those factors I just named, that being a renter becomes a much smarter decision every year you intend to own less than 10, and particularly less than five years.
1: So you referenced some of those transaction costs associated with buying and selling homes. Sometimes I think those really get lost in the shuffle or people underestimate that. Can you talk about that? Because it seems like that's another headwind. If you're someone who is planning to cycle through home purchases pretty quickly, that can really cut into any money that you might be able to earn from from that experience.
3: Sure. And one thing that can frustrate people in the financial industry with me is a lot of times I do back of the envelope numbers. So know that the number I'm going to give you now is not precise, but it's to try to make a point to prospective home buyer. I call it the 10 and 10 rule that figure you're going to have roughly 10% of the cost of buying a home in and 10% out. You know, There's so many expenses involved in establishing that house all the expenses with getting that mortgage, closing on it, the money you have to spend on possessions and purchases for the house, things you might even not think about that you're going to have to buy a lawnmower, a washer and dryer. I mean, there's an endless list of things you have to buy going in. And so I just try to get people to think, well, think of whatever the purchase price is and figure it's 10% of that for everything all in involved in you buying that home. And then obviously going out when you're selling, most people are going to have a significant real estate commission, plus the repairs a buyer might have you make and other expenses you have fixing up the property for sale. So that's why I just call it the 10 and 10. How
1: about older adults who are getting close to retirement? Should they retire their mortgages prior to retirement or is it really individual dependent?
3: There's a certain amount of individual nuance on it, but When I talk to somebody who's, uh, let's say, around 50 and they're moving to a new home and they're asking me about the interest rates on 30-year mortgages, I pretty much am ready to have my blood pressure checked because that means if you at 50 are taking out a new mortgage, you still have it at age 80. Mm -hmm. And that's no way to live. You know, when you cycle into a home in the core years of middle age, I want you to take out a 15-year loan. I want you to be mortgage debt-free so that you have a wiggle room, you have freedom in retirement to be retired. Very few people, unless they're in a job where they make a great deal of money and they've been just fantastic savers, or they're the tiny percent of people who get a wonderful employer-provided pension, very few people have as much cash flow in retirement as they had pre-retirement when they were still working full-time at their chosen job or profession. So I want people to be mortgage debt-free in retirement, but I don't want you to do it at sacrifice of everything else. I will talk to people who are several years from retirement and they've stopped saving any money for retirement And everything they're doing is devoted to this single-minded goal of being mortgage debt-free. But the issue with that is that you can't eat your house. So if you have not generated money and savings that you can draw on in retirement, it's fantastic. You own your house free and clear, but you still have a significant cash flow problem. So it is all based on where the person is financially at the point they're asking me the question. And the question you pose to me, I get most often from people about mid-50s or so. That's when they're asking me, well, what do I do? I, I got this mortgage and I want to be able to retire at blah, blah, blah age. Um, should I just do everything I can to pay off the mortgage? And the answer is it really depends on me going through a series of questions with them about everything else they've done and everything they've got that they've saved. Maybe to
2: stick with that topic, housing and that older demographic, I think you've been pretty critical of reverse mortgages, but it's also true that some older adults have more housing wealth than they have in liquid assets. So who are reverse mortgages
3: right for? And conversely, who should avoid them? So... I love that you asked me this question because reverse mortgages are for some people the the way I put it is least bad choice because there's a lot of expenses involved in establishing a reverse mortgage. So you eat up some of that equity you've worked so hard to build. On the other hand, if somebody is extremely cash poor and their house for many people will be their best Asset they can draw on. And if you don't have kids you're worrying about inheriting, doing a reverse mortgage is great. I want you to go through with an accredited housing counselor to understand all the elements of doing that reverse mortgage and know that you're going to pay the fees up front. But the ability to get money every month, almost like using your house as your own personal pension fund is a viable alternative when someone is facing poverty because they don't have, beyond Social Security, they don't have real resources other than the value of their home. What I do like is for a parent to say if they've got uh, one, two, or more adult children, say, hey, we want you to know this is what we're thinking of doing. We're thinking of taking out this reverse mortgage. It means there'll be no house inheritance. Just want you to know about this. And uh, that that's the situation. The alternative, particularly if you have a child or two who's fairly affluent, they may do the equivalent of being the provider of the reverse mortgage for you, which would eliminate the costs that you would have with the reverse mortgage. You know, if they end up inheriting the property, and so they're the ones that float the value to you, that is an alternative where you have parents who are short of funds and adult children who are in a position to support their parents' lifestyle.
1: So a related question is, I've heard of, you know, sort of the flip side of that, where the parents float the private loan to the kids who want to buy a house. And so it's maybe a better yield to the parents and so forth. But can you walk through sort of whether you think that's a good idea within families for the parents to be making the loan to the
3: kid? Well, it's a great idea for the kids. It's not necessarily a great idea for the parents. Because as a parent, if your kid comes to you for a private mortgage and they are not, uh, let's say they've not been the most careful and responsible with their money, and the mortgage payments are late or they don't show up, what are you going to do as a parent? I mean, are you going to foreclose on your own kid? or are you going to support your kid's lifestyle and the problem of not being financially responsible? It is a very, very difficult thing, and it goes right with the core of... I get a lot of questions from people about co-signing for a car loan for their kids Mm -hmm. or lending their kids money, and so I always take this... I mean, I'm such an optimistic person, but on (laughs) this one issue... I'm gloom and doom with people. I really lay out, well, what would you do if your kid did this or your kid didn't do that or or your kid just walked away or, you know, they didn't make the payments on the car. Are you going to make the payments? I, the funny thing I hear over and over again from parents, girlfriend, boyfriend, siblings, when I ask the question about being a cosigner of vehicle loan and I ask, well, are you in a position to take over the payments if the person you want to co-sign for doesn't make the payments. And I'll tell you probably three quarters of the time, the answer is no, no, I can't afford those payments. And I'm like, well, then you can't co-sign because it's your credit that gets trashed. And you also are in position of facing a repo action where they come after you for deficiency, the loss from the repo of the vehicle and your credits fouled up for seven years, blah, 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 blah. So I work really hard to be a complete nuisance to people (laughs) when they ask me a question about doing a private loan or being a co-signer because they need to know that there's more to it than just being a generous soul or feeling guilty.
2: Since we're talking cars, how should people decide whether to buy or lease a car, in your opinion?
3: Buy, 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 buy. Unless a vehicle is nothing but lifestyle to you. You know, the people who lease a vehicle for 24 to 36 months are doing so because it's what they like. It's consumption to them. And so every single person who does that, you were taking on the lion's share of the depreciation in the vehicle because vehicles lose the greatest amount of their value at the most rapid rate in those first three years. So when you are someone who says, yeah, I don't care. I just really like having the new wheels every two years, every three years, particularly true with a lot of luxury car buyers who love having the fancy German wheels. When you are that person, you understand that is a lifestyle decision you're making and you don't mind spending the money, go for it. But if you want to preserve your wallet as much as possible, you buy a vehicle. If you buy new, I want you to drive it till the wheels fall off or equivalent minimum 10 years. But vehicles are made so well now that a vehicle can last a really, really long time. We tire out of a vehicle way before vehicles tire out (laughs) on us. And when you own a vehicle, a new one 10 years or longer, You've really flattened the depreciation curve, and your cost of ownership declines so much year by year by year, even when you factor in the cost of repairs. And if you like to buy used cars, normally, right now, the used market is going through enormous distortions because of the chip shortage, and used vehicles have gone way up in price. Normally, if you buy a two- or three-year-old vehicle and keep it a four-year cycle, that's the equivalent of buying a new vehicle and keeping it for 10. But one of the oddest things going on right now in the vehicle market, and this is a temporary disruption because of the chip shortages, is it's not at all unusual to see a one- or two-year-old version of a model selling for more money in the used vehicle market than a brand new one because the used one you can get right away The brand new one, you may have a wait of two to six months to get.
1: So what's your advice for car buyers in this environment? I mean, some people can wait, but some people literally cannot wait. So how should they proceed?
3: If you can't wait, look at the brands that in the most recent reporting for the last quarter were having far fewer problems producing vehicles, that they were much less affected by the chip issues than others. Top of the list of that Toyota. If you go look like on Auto Trader and you look where you select new vehicles and you look at how many of every model of Toyota pretty much is available right now that you can buy in dealer inventories around the country. It's shocking compared to many other automakers. I don't know what Toyota did. I don't know what Tesla did. Well, I do know some of what Tesla did, that they've been much less affected by the chip shortages. But these two automakers seem to be in a much better position to deliver vehicles, new ones, that they have in stock at their dealers and around manufacturer suggested retail price rather than the big markups above suggested retail that a lot of other dealers of other brands are selling for. One other brand seems to have been less affected by the chip shortages as well is Hyundai and their sister company, Kia. But other than those four companies, the chip shortage has really made it a brutal time to buy a vehicle. And there's one particular model from General Motors that is a deal right now in the marketplace. It's the Chevy Bolt, B-O-L-T, comparing it to the discontinued Volt. The Bolt is a vehicle that seems to be an unloved player in the electric vehicle market, but it has a good range, about 250 miles on a charge. There are some 21s still available on dealer lots around the country. And GM is giving a huge rebate on 21s, meaning that if you shop around, you can get a brand new one for about twenty-six dollars to $28,000 if you buy a 21, which in today's marketplace is great. And the demand of the public for more affordable new vehicles is so gigantic. I don't know if either of you have heard of the Ford Maverick, which is a new pickup truck from Ford. And Ford has had to discontinue taking orders for a year because they've sold out every bit of their production capacity already till 23. And that's because the Maverick starts at $20,000.
2: What about car loans? We've seen the terms of car loans get stretched way out as car prices have increased and you've referenced some of those increases. You're against some of these longer term loans. Can you explain why?
3: Yeah. So I'm not sure if I've got gray hair and a bald spot because of having three teenagers, you know, (laughs) going through the stages of being teenagers, or if it's my upset with people taking out long-term vehicle loans. Because when you take out a loan longer than 42 months, you are setting yourself up for a disaster because for almost the entire length of your vehicle loan, you are what they call in the slang of the trade, upside down, owing more on your vehicle than what it's worth. And so you're putting yourself in a position where you're pricing your life for perfection. But things happen. I mean, you know, people lose jobs they thought they were safe in. Um, People go through divorces, all kinds they get ill. All kinds of things happen. Life's not perfect. So you don't want to put yourself at a disadvantage where you owe more on a vehicle for year after year after year than what that vehicle's worth. And that sweet spot Is 42 months or less. So what I say is that if you cannot afford the payment on the vehicle you're interested in at a payment cycle of 42 months, then you can't afford that vehicle. And it's, I'm, you know, I'm always trying to get people to eat their spinach instead of having candy. I mean, it's just just the way I am, but it's all about you being able to have all the candy you want later in your life because you were careful and took care of yourself financially through your working lifetime.
1: Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to tap your expertise on budgeting. I was involved in a great discussion about budgeting on Twitter, and I contended that it's better to just set a savings target and try to hit it rather than getting really granular about tracking spending. Where do you come down on that issue? Is that sort of Line item expense tracking essential, or can people go without
3: it? So my belief is, the people who do really conscientious work tracking their spending and using a budget are people looking for affirmation. People who are already great at it, who already live well beneath their paycheck, and so it's kind of like their way of patting themselves on the back, seeing that they're you know if one of the apps uses green, meaning, you know, you're meeting your goals, and red that you're not. They get to see a line of green just looking through the app. And so I'm with you that the budgeting apps are not where it's at, that the goal up front is to learn to live on less than what you make, and by setting yourself on a path of that, by always saving money first. And the easiest although not always the best, but the easiest is if you have an employer-provided retirement plan where you set it on an automatic pilot and you've got a minimum 10 cents of every dollar you make going into that retirement account. And my preference is for really dull investments, which I know runs counter to a lot of the Morningstar community, but I'm really into dull Because remember, I already told you I'm the dullest person alive.
1: (laughs) We're an adult
3: too. Okay, so, so I'm with you that the budgeting tools are not what I think are important. What I think is important is if somebody says, well, I don't have any money to save a dime of every dollar I make and participate in that 401k or set up a Roth IRA and put money into it every month. That's when I say, okay, I want you to... Do something really painful. I want you to record everything you spent for two weeks. I want you to write down every time you bought a sandwich, every time you went to Walmart and bought whatever, everything you spent money on. I want you to look at your monthly bills, credit card, checking account, and see what automatic bills you have. And then let's start looking at what are the things in your life that you can create some freedom in your life by reducing those expenses or eliminating some others. Because what we found out early in the pandemic, back in 20, was so many people were shocked at how much less money they suddenly started spending in parts of the country where there were tight lockdowns. And this has been something that I think behavioral economists have been just stunned by is that how much of people's spending was discretionary. And a lot of times people who who are living what feels paycheck to paycheck, or maybe they are living paycheck to paycheck, and they're making an amount of money that they should certainly be able to have more money to draw on, it was clear from what happened in the spring and summer of 20 that we could do a lot better with everywhere we're spending money, and there's a lot of expenses we have that we just pay them because we pay them. The gym membership, whatever we're paying for our cell phone without shopping to see all the new lower-cost plans that are out there, what we're paying for internet connection, what we're paying for all these streaming services we're doing. When's the last time you watch this one, that one, or the other? I bought a uh, annual on something called uh, Paramount+. Plus. Mm-hmm. And my renewal is coming up. It's a hundred bucks for the year, and I don't watch TV. I only watch football. Because, <laughs> well, that's the only time I watch TV is to watch football. So my football, my TV, and football thing is about to stop, really soon with the Super Bowl. And so I've been polling my family members. Do any of you watch this Paramount Plus? And I'm so far out of four people I've asked to. And I got zero who've actually watched anything. So that's the kind of thing I want you to do. I want you to think about what you're just obligating yourself to month after month, or in the case of the Paramount, it was an annual for a hundred bucks. I mean, are you really using this? Is this useful in your life? Would that hundred dollars be better in my wallet? And my opinion is, yes, it would be.
2: Since you mentioned it, do you think that the pandemic... Tragic and disruptive as it's been. Do you see any evidence that maybe it's helped to instill healthier saving and spending habits in those who have been
3: affected by it? Or do you think a lot of that has just faded as things have reopened? So we did see a massive increase in the personal savings rate in that time period I was talking about in 20, where we were finally an Asian country. Because, you know, across Asia, except for South Korea, it's very common that people save roughly a third of what they make. And, you know, in America, depending on the year, we tend to save five, six, seven cents on the dollar, typical personal savings rate. And then we, all of a sudden we're saving 30 something percent. Well, that has fallen back to close to historical averages. from What I've been reading somewhere around seven cents on the dollar people are saving. So I think people know from what they experienced almost two years ago, that you can save substantially more. But people like buying their stuff, you know, whatever (laughs) stuff that is, people like buying it. And consumption of goods has gone up a lot as people have diverted from travel, eating out, that kind of thing. And people, instead of continuing to save that money, have transferred it into buying, you know, new big TVs or whatever, whatever. And so it is hard for us in our culture to really put an emphasis on delaying gratification and making sure you put the savings building blocks in place.
1: You're often sharing ideas about how to save money. And in fact, you just mentioned a few. So like looking at all those subscriptions, looking at your cell phone, looking at your cable TV services, what are the other areas that you consider sort of low hanging fruit? If someone wants to try to find money in their budget to save, where should they focus their energies?
3: You know, every personal finance person in the United States picks on Starbucks. And says, you know, you just give up that Starbucks habit and you're going to have $1,000 a year. Or, you know, there's the thing, I forget who did the math on bottled water. If you stop buying bottled water, that the average drinker of bottled water will have $1,400 more dollars at the end of the year. So, I mean, there's a lot of things that are different person to person, but it kind of surprises people where what seems like a small daily indulgence that if you multiply that out by 365, you can find suddenly a new 500 or 1000 or $1,500 that's in your life that was just disappearing before. So I don't want to guilt trip people about this. I want it to be something you want to do because you want to bring that power back into your life and have money instead of owing money. So it really is about you doing that two-week thing I alluded to earlier where you write down either in a notes program on your phone or even have one of those micro spiral notebooks that you can write down everything if you prefer pen and paper. And you'll see where that money's going. Where is it for you that little things you do over a couple of weeks that making a change with those suddenly generates money in your life. You know, when somebody tells me they can't come up with $200 a month to go into a Roth IRA, I know that's a lot less than the max, but, you know, $200 a month is a number I talk about a lot. I also refer to it as 50 a week, which is not really accurate since there's 4.3 weeks in a month. But trying to drill it down to making decisions where you put aside a steady amount of money for your future, I want you to think about a goal like that that you're going to accomplish by reorienting and rethinking how you spend all the time. You know, it's not enough to say to somebody, you know, you're probably throwing away a lot of money every week or every month or whatever. It really has to be with a if-then. If you control that spending and you reduce it, you could then accomplish this. And over a long period, you would end up with a great deal of money in your life and give you more choices about when you retire and what kind of retirement you'll have.
2: We're going to talk about inflation for a minute. How can people protect themselves against inflation? Or I suppose even more basic question is, should they be doing things to try to protect themselves against inflation?
3: People are already doing it. I'm a big Aldi shopper. I don't know if either of you shop at Aldi. But Aldi is the German discounter that is soon going to be the third largest supermarket in the United States. And uh, there's another one on the eastern seaboard I shop at called Lidl. Both of them are German rivals that have come in the United States. And I get really frustrated when I go to my Aldi, which is a three-minute walk from where I live, and they're sold out of all kinds of things, not because of supply chain, but because people have suddenly discovered it and it's busy all the time and the (laughs) register lines are really long. I think that people have, in a lot of cases, adjusted particularly to food price inflation by changing what they're buying. I saw recently that the sales of private label store brand have been going way up over the last uh, year or so as people deal with the crunch to their wallet of inflation, and people are changing where they shop. So they're changing how they shop and where they shop. If the inflationary cycle is not a transitory one, if this is something really being baked in the American cake, and we have significant inflation over time, it will reduce people's standard of living. We're not there yet. We haven't had inflation for a sustained long enough period of time that it's really harming people's lives and long-term prospects but if we don't get the inflationary cycle under control it will cause real harm because the easy stuff people are doing changing where they shop and how they shop but once you get into sustained inflation that one-time benefit is not there anymore
1: Speaking of saving money, you were a travel professional earlier in your career, you mentioned, and I think we could do the whole segment on saving money on travel. But what are sort of your main tips for people who kind of have pent up demand through the pandemic and want to get back out there on travel?
3: Well, I didn't travel at all till I got my second vaccine in February of 21, and then I've been in the air ever since. I've been on cruises. I've done I've been back. I'm out cruises. there and I'm I travel. I've even gone on a cruise. I went on the first cruise from a US port after they were shut down for 16 months. And it was great being on that first one and getting the experience. I know with Omicron some people have had terrible experiences on cruises recently with the outbreaks on ships, but I've been out there, I've been traveling and I've noticed that it's going in waves and there was a decline in travel during the peak of the Delta. There's obviously been a decline in travel during the Omicron wave, but now people seem to be interested again. I can tell by the mix of questions we're getting that people are getting out there again. And I think we're reaching that psychological point it's not a specific day it's not a specific event but i think people are going to just say you know what i've given up 2 years to this thing i'm going to take my chances and live my life moving forward and i think you're going to see travel recover transoceanic which has been deader than dead could be dead across the atlantic from uh mostly the east coast and then across the pacific mostly from the west coast that This is the year people are going to be back doing it. But my key rule to saving money on travel, I know it sounds like a joke, but it's actually not, is that instead of focusing on a destination and a date, let the deals drive your trip. You know, you'll eventually see the whole world. I've been to every continent except Antarctica. I've been to, I don't even know how many countries I've been to, not 100, but close. And I just buy the deal. I take my staff on a staff trip every year, a reward trip. We do some meetings and then they get to play. And a newbie on my staff will say, well, when are we going and and where are we going? People just start laughing because everybody who's on my team knows we go wherever in the world goes (laughs) on sale. And that's how we decide. And so if you let the deal drive your decision, You'll be able to go a lot more places. You'll see everywhere. You won't do it in the order maybe you intended. But with deregulation of travel everywhere in the world, letting price be your friend is how you get it done. And I've noticed just recently that there have been some really, really good fares to Europe after the airlines gave up for a long time there are a lot of really great deals being posted for spring with fares from around the U S to a lot of places in Europe in the threes, the fours and the fives round trip.
2: I wanted to turn to investing in retirement. Your website is refreshingly opinionated in terms of discouraging investors from some activities like options, trading, buying crypto. What's a short list of strategies that most individual investors should avoid?
3: So, First, I should tell you my core audience are people who are not investors in any way, shape, or form. They are not sophisticated or really that interested in investing. So I recommend very, very basic strategies to people in their investing as they are starting out or they're doing a 401k at work or something like that. So the things that I say are not... Uh, necessarily right for someone who is a sophisticated investor, someone who is a a big-time, you know, user of Morningstar content. Because I'm not dealing with people who've even ever heard of Morningstar or any other investing advice organization or rating organization. I'm dealing with people who come from a family where no one has ever had a stock brokerage account or mutual fund account, or investing account. So the reason I wanted to frame that is my advice is so basic. In a 401k, pick the year closest to when you're going to retire and put all your money in the target retirement fund, period, end of story. And the reason that's what I say is because if someone has no interest or desire to learn about it, but they know they need to save. What I find is that most often they go in to the stable value choice or something like that, the closest to a savings account or CD possible in a 401k. And as we know, that's not going to get it done. That's not going to grow your money. You're not going to outrun inflation. You're not going to get the advantage of putting money aside for the decades that you're working. So, I want people to go 100% in in that target retirement fund because it's the easiest spot. Now, let's say somebody's doing a Roth IRA. I want them to do a Roth IRA only with a low-cost company. I call them my three favorite children, Vanguard, (laughs) Fidelity, and Schwab. And if they go to any of those three, I want them to go in the target retirement fund choice. Somebody's opening an investment account. I love for them to go to Fidelity. And I know it's gimmicky, but with a regular investment account go into the Fidelity Zero funds where they're doing, you know, no commissions up front, no ongoing management expenses, and they own little pieces of the whole market. So if I could give advice that was less individualized, I don't know how I could. Because I'm broad brush painting for a target audience that, doesn't understand and doesn't want to have to understand the mechanics of investing. And I want them to build that financial security at the lowest possible cost they can.
1: So it appears that you really pretty downbeat on annuities as well. And I'm wondering if you can kind of walk through (laughs) what downbeat maybe is an understatement, but maybe you can walk through your major reservations there and Also, do you think actually some sort of annuity can make sense? You mentioned how few people have pensions today. Can a really basic low-cost annuity maybe make sense in that
3: context? All right. So if my math was right, you cussed five times in that (laughs) question because everybody knows who listens to my podcast, reads my stuff that that is a curse word. You know, we're a family podcast that I do and so we have lots of children listening and I don't like them to hear cuss words like annuity. So annuities by their very nature are not evil or bad and there are certain annuities, I'll start with the good, that are great. I believe that generating essentially your own pension check for the rest of your life is awesome because you can generate a lot more reliable monthly income by turning money you have into a life annuity or immediate payout annuity. Both terms are used interchangeably in the business. And then you have done just what you said. You've recreated a pension for yourself where you didn't have one and you don't have to worry about outrunning your money, outliving your money. The other one I really like is the longevity annuity where you don't buy it to go into effect. So you buy it when you're younger but you don't get any money unless you have a really lucky birthday, whatever birthday it is that the longevity annuity starts paying. Most often at 75 or 80 because the greatest danger that a lot of people face is that they expect they're going to live to the same age as their mom or dad who may have died at a relatively young age. And then, gosh, they lived a really long time and they're out of money. And so the longevity annuity means you can spend every penny you got and then up to the point of that 75th or 80th birthday, and then the money thrown off by the longevity annuity is enough to supply your needs for the rest of your life. The insurance company is also making an actuarial assumption knowing that odds are really good you might be gone before that day ever comes. So you get a bigger benefit than mathematically you might have otherwise if you weren't accounting for all the people who just didn't make it to that point. Now, then let's move to every other annuity. Hate, 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 hate. Uh, You know, the annuities that are various forms of index annuities, which are so hot right now, where the insurance salesperson says, this is great, you can never lose money if you buy this thing, and you'll get the return of the stock market. Okay. And then you get an insurance contract that's 150 pages long written by lawyers that designed it so that no one, including the insurance salesman, would have any idea what that contract says. So only if you do every possible thing it says are you actually guaranteed not to lose money, number one. Number two, you don't get the return of the stock market. You only get a portion each year in an up year of the return of the stock market. You don't get the benefit of dividends, which are a big part of what the benefit is of being in one. And you also face brutal surrender charges. If you, for some reason, want to bail at some point, you have to pay this massive amount of your money to the insurance company for wanting your own money back. Not to mention that there's the other angle, which Insurance salespeople sell these as if they have great tax treatment, where the reality is your earnings are subject to ordinary income tax, where people investing traditional ways benefit from the much lower capital gains tax rate. And I could go on and talk about each of the various types of annuity garbage that are these massive commission products that are never bought. They're sold by aggressive salespeople who tell you, only a portion of the truth leading to a big lie. And you can see why I'm never invited to any insurance company event (laughs) to receive some kind of award because my brother sells insurance, my middle brother. And he was telling me a story one day that one of his friends was listening to me and got so upset he pulled off the freeway, got out of his car, and went around the car screaming and yelling, pounding his feet (laughs) in the dirt because he just was insulted by what I say. But I mean, how do you counter that as an insurance salesperson when the industry refuses to live by the fiduciary standard, fights every attempt to live by the fiduciary standard? Because if they live by a fiduciary standard, they could never sell the garbage that they go out and rip people off with every day. And as you can tell, I have no opinion about these products.
2: <laughs> That's a good segue to the last thing we wanted to ask you about, which is finding financial advice. One of the, I guess you could say perverse things about investment advice is that to find a quality advisor, you actually need to be sort of knowledgeable. And I think you've actually alluded to some of the sort of perils um, that attend to the process of finding an advisor that puts your interests first. What tips do you have for consumers who want to delegate financial decision-making to a professional? What should they look for? And then also, what should they pay? What's your perspective on the type of fee structure is best for consumers seeking financial advice?
3: So when somebody's starting out and they're my core audience where they really lack knowledge about how the investing world works, what the terminology means and all the rest, I'd like for them to potentially default to the various robos, whether it's Betterment or Wealthfront or using the uh, Vanguard advisory services where they take on fiduciary duty and they have the one that's all automated and then they have the various levels with humans involved and, uh, Schwab has the intelligent portfolios, which have been very controversial, but I think are a good starting point for people. And then Fidelity has its version of fiduciary advice that is mostly robo. Why do I default to those five? Because the way you frame the question, when you're dealing with people that are newbie investors, they haven't saved a lot of money, their first job is to accumulate. And later in life, as they develop more money, it becomes a bigger focus. That's when it becomes valuable both to the advisor, who's a fiduciary, and to you as the investor to hire somebody who is much deeper in financial planning, looking at your estate issues, will, what are your long-term goals, how are you doing meeting them? that it's not about picking and choosing investments. When you get to a real advisor with real fiduciary advice, it's much more about dealing with you holistically and the family issues. And let's say you're in a second marriage and you got blended families and what do you do about the kids and all that, that a real good, solid fiduciary financial advisor is not going to start touting you should be in this limited partnership or we should have you in this series of stocks. I mean, that's not where it's at. It's about working with somebody to give them the advice they need. Maybe even they're a small business owner and there's questions about succession and what do they do with selling the business? How do they pass it on to another generation? Where does life insurance fit in with being able to retain the business and have a family member take over. I mean, these are the kind of things that become more clear and absolutely essential once somebody has gone through the initial accumulation phase of building wealth.
1: Well, Clark, this has been such a illuminating and fun conversation. We really appreciate you taking time out of your schedule to be with us, it's been a treat.
3: It's really fun to do this because of the thing I've mentioned a few times is that I'm speaking to such a different audience than you are at Morningstar, that I'm dealing with people who are not in the orbit of normal investing. And it's just so great. It was really fun for me to hear what type of questions you were curious about. And so I've loved doing this. It was fun for us too. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you.
1: Thank you for joining us on The Long View. If you could, please take a moment to subscribe to and rate the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can follow us on Twitter at Christine underscore Benz.
2: And at sYouth1, which is S-Y-O-U-T-H and the number one.
1: George Kastady is our engineer for the podcast and Carrie Grechik produces the show notes each week. Finally, we'd love to get your feedback. If you have a comment or a guest idea, please email us at thelongview@morningstar.com. Until next time, thanks for joining us.
0: This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar, Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. Jeff Patak is an employee of Morningstar Research Services, LLC. Morningstar Research Services is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission.